peace notes, which season the peace like savory spices. In England, some uses hint loudly at the word's theological source. British subject address royalty as your grace. Students at Oxford and Cambridge may receive a grace, exempting them from certain academic requirements. Parliament declares an act of grace to pardon a criminal. New York publishers also suggest the theological meaning with their policy of gracing. If I sign up for 12 issues of a magazine, I may receive a few extra copies even after my subscription has expired. These are grace issues, sent free of charge or gratis to tempt me to resubscribe. Credit cards, rental car agencies, and mortgage companies likewise extend to customers an undeserved grace period. I also learn about a word from its opposite. Newspapers speak of communism's fall from grace, a phrase similarly applied to Jimmy Swaggart, Richard Nixon, and O.J. Simpson. We insult a person by pointing out the dearth of grace. You ingrate, we say, or worse. You're a disgrace. A truly despicable person has no saving grace about him. My favorite use of the root word grace occurs in the mellifluous phrase persona non grata. A person who offends the U.S. government by some act of treachery is officially proclaimed a person without grace. The many uses of the word in English convince me that grace is indeed amazing, truly our last best word. It contains the essence of the gospel as a drop of water can contain the image of the sun. The world thirsts for grace in ways it does not even recognize. Little wonder the hymn Amazing Grace edged its way to the top ten charts 200 years after composition. For a society that seems adrift, without moorings, I know of no better place to drop an anchor of faith. Like grace notes in music, though, the state of grace proves fleeting. The Berlin Wall falls in a night of euphoria. South African blacks queue up in long, exuberant lines to cast their first votes ever. Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shake hands in the Rose Garden. For a moment, grace descends. And then Eastern Europe sullenly settles into the long task of rebuilding. South Africa tries to figure out how to run a country. Arafat dodges bullets, and Rabin is felled by one. Like a dying star, grace dissipates in a final burst of pale light, and is then engulfed by the black hole of ungrace. The great Christian revolutions, said H. Richard Niebuhr, come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. Oddly, I sometimes find a shortage of grace within the church, an institution founded to proclaim in Paul's phrase, the gospel of God's grace. Author Stephen Brown notes that a veterinarian can learn a lot about a dog owner he has never met just by observing the dog. What does the world learn about God by watching us, his followers, on earth? Trace the roots of grace or charis in Greek, and you will find a verb that means, I rejoice, I am glad. In my experience, rejoicing and gladness are not the first images that come to mind when people think of the church. 
They think of holier-than-thous. They think of church as a place to go after you have cleaned up your act, not before. They think of morality, not grace. Church, said the prostitute, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. Such an attitude comes partly from a misconception or bias by outsiders. I have visited soup kitchens, homeless shelters, hospices, and prison ministries staffed by Christian volunteers, generous with grace. And yet the prostitute's comment stings because she has found a weak spot in the church. Some of us seem so anxious about avoiding hell that we forget to celebrate our journey toward heaven. Others of us, rightly concerned about issues in a modern culture war, neglect the church's mission as a haven of grace in this world of ungrace. Grace is everywhere, said the dying priest in Georges Bernanoff's novel, Diary of a Country Priest. Yes, but how easily we pass by, deaf to the euphony. I attended a Bible college. Years later, when I was sitting next to the president of that school on an airplane, he asked me to assess my education. Some good, some bad, I replied. I met many godly people there. In fact, I met God there. Who can place a value on that? And yet I later realized that in four years, I learned almost nothing about grace. It may be the most important word in the Bible, the heart of the gospel. How could I have missed it? I related our conversation in a subsequent chapel address, and in doing so, offended the faculty. Some suggested I not be invited back to speak. One gentle soul wrote to ask whether I should have phrased things differently. Shouldn't I have said that as a student I lacked the receptors to receive the grace that was all around me? Because I respect and love this man, I thought long and hard about his question. Ultimately, however, I concluded that I had experienced as much ungrace on the campus of a Bible college as I had anywhere else in life. A counselor, David Siemens, summed up his career this way. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace. But that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. The world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church, says Gordon MacDonald. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. MacDonald has put his finger on the church's single most important contribution. Where else can the world go to find grace? The Italian novelist Ignazio Salone wrote about a revolutionary hunted by the police. In order to hide him, his comrades dressed him in the garb of a priest and sent him to a remote village in the foothills of the Alps. Word got out, and soon a long line of peasants appeared at his door, full of stories of their sins and broken lives. The priest protested 
and tried to turn them away to no avail. He had no recourse but to sit and listen to the stories of people starving for grace. I sense, in fact, that is why any person goes to church, out of hunger for grace. The book, Growing Up Fundamentalist, tells of a reunion of students from a missionary academy in Japan. With one or two exceptions, all had left the faith and come back, one of the students reported, and those of us who had come back had one thing in common. We had all discovered grace. As I look back on my own pilgrimage, marked by wanderings, detours, and dead ends, I see now that what pulled me along was my search for grace. I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. I have barely tasted of grace myself. I have rendered less than I have received and am in no wise an expert on grace. These are, in fact, the very reasons that impel me to write. I want to know more, to understand more, to experience more grace. I dare not, and the danger is very real, write an ungracious book about grace. Except then, here at the beginning, that I write as a pilgrim qualified only by my craving for grace. Grace does not offer an easy subject for a writer. To borrow E.B. White's comment about humor, grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. I have just read a 13-page treatise on grace in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, which has cured me of any desire to dissect grace and display its innards. I do not want the thing to die. For this reason, I will rely more on stories than on syllogisms. In sum, I would far rather convey grace than explain it. Karen Blixen, Danish by birth, married a baron and spent the years 1914 through 1931 managing a coffee plantation in British East Africa, her out of Africa tells of these years. After a divorce, she returned to Denmark and began writing in English under the pseudonym Isaac Dinesen. One of her stories, Babette's Feast, became a cult classic after being made into a movie in the 1980s. Dinesen set her story in Norway, but the Danish filmmakers changed the location to an impoverished fishing village on the coast of Denmark, a town of muddy streets and thatched roof hovels. In this grim setting, a white-bearded dean led a group of worshippers in an austere Lutheran sect. What few worldly pleasures could tempt a peasant in Norevosburg, this sect renounced. All wore black. Their diet consisted of boiled cod and a gruel made from boiling bread and water fortified with a splash of ale. On the Sabbath, the group met together and sang songs about Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. They had fixed their compasses on the new Jerusalem, 
with life on earth tolerated as a way to get there. The old dean, a widower, had two teenage daughters, Martine, named after Martin Luther, and Philippa, named for Luther's disciple Philip Melanchthon. Villagers used to attend the church just to feast their eyes on these two, whose radiant beauty could not be suppressed despite the sisters' best efforts. Martine caught the eye of a dashing young cavalry officer. When she successfully resisted his advances, after all, who would care for her aging father, he rode away to marry instead a lady-in-waiting to Queen Sophia. Philippa possessed not only beauty, but also the voice of a nightingale. When she sang about Jerusalem, shimmering visions of the heavenly city seemed to appear. And so it happened that Philippa made the acquaintance of the most famous operatic singer of the day, the Frenchman Achille Papin, who was spending some time on the coast for his health. As he walked the dirt paths of a backwater town, Papin heard to his astonishment a voice worthy of the grand opera of Paris. Allow me to teach you to sing properly, he urged Philippa, and all France will fall at your feet. Royalty will line up to meet you, and you will ride in a horse-drawn carriage to dine at the magnificent Café Anglas. Flattered, Philippa consented to a few lessons, but only a few. Singing about love made her nervous. The fluttering she felt inside troubled her further, and when an aria from Don Giovanni ended with her being held in Papin's embrace, his lips brushing hers, she knew beyond doubt that these new pleasures must be renounced. Her father wrote a note declining all future lessons, and Achille Papin returned to Paris as disconsolate as if he'd misplaced a winning lottery ticket. Fifteen years passed, and much changed in the village. The two sisters, now middle-aged spinsters, had attempted to carry on the mission of their deceased father, but without his stern leadership the sect splintered badly. One brother bore a grudge against another concerning some business matter. Rumors spread about a thirty-year-old sexual affair involving two of the members. A pair of old ladies had not spoken to each other for a decade. Although the sect still met on the Sabbath and sang the old hymns, only a handful bothered to attend, and the music had lost its luster. Despite all these problems, the dean's two daughters remained faithful, organizing the services, and boiling bread for the toothless elders of the village. One night, a night too rainy for anyone to venture on the muddy streets, the sisters heard a heavy thump at the door. When they opened it, a woman collapsed in a swoon. They revived her only to find she spoke.